Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Lost in the Groove with your host, Mike and Dave. Today, we'll be talking about life, society, as well as we can make things better, start a new day for a better tomorrow. Let's continue with the intro music so we can start today's podcast. Hey guys, and welcome to Lost in the Groove. Today we have a special guest, David Putvin. Am I saying it correctly? Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, today we're going to be discussing cannabis and derivatives. So today before us we have Mike, who actually has been working uh, with the CBD market. I think you said 10 years. It's been 10 years, Mike? Close to it, yeah. Yeah, close to it. And David, who has been part of the cannabis industry and its whole, uh, we've actually had quite a number of conversations before. Uh, before we start today's episode, I would like to say uh, thank you to our sponsor today, which is Anchor. And of course, guys, you can check us out at patreon.com slash lost in the groove. Uh, of course, we have to put a disclaimer. We just want to let you know that all the information that we're providing for you today is coming from actual professionals who actually work in this industry and understand it quite well. Uh, we're just giving over the facts, the information, as well as the education that's the most important. And always remember, be safe out there, kids. Don't get in trouble. So let's go around for introductions. Um, I'm Dave. Mike. I'm Mike. That's Mike. That's Mike. And that's, and that's David. David. <laughs> and I'm David. I work for a medical carding company out in Utah called utahcana.org. Canada did we what do? <laughs> Changing uh, the game, or at least trying to out here in Utah. Medical only. Yeah, so <clears throat> kind of now we have this season and you know i've kind of made eight points that we can all touch on one thing mike has constantly been bringing up with me was what we knew about cannabis you know from my understanding that kind of time period falls kind of the nixon period when he had the war on drugs and that put cannabis on the level of um subject one (laughs) so it's like heroin <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I, it, it's funny, but it's sad at the same time. But with that being in mind, we've had that period of where we couldn't do that much research. So, what did we know before cannabis is what it is now? With the research, the science, the work, the companies that all come into it. People knew they gravitated towards it. They, they, they knew they felt inside themselves that they liked it. They might not have known the exact uh, compounds in the plant that they were consuming that were making them feel the way that they were feeling. But people knew that this plant is beneficial to them and they liked the way it makes them feel in their day-to-day life. Or maybe they even recognized effects in their health. Chronic pain is pretty systemic. Everybody experiences pain. Eventually, people learn what's good for that pain. And cannabis is good for many forms of pain. 
Right. So, you know, kind of turning the table, Mike, you know, you come from this category specifically when you're dealing with medicinal plants. What is your state on what we knew in regards to this? In all honesty, I mean, it's um, for that period of time, though there were some studies, uh, I feel like uh, what we've been told and what uh, information did come out uh, throughout the years is that uh, they, they intentionally ran studies to, um, to conclude that uh, it should be banned and illegal. Um, you know, when, when, you take, when you take the experiments as far as they did back then um, to get the results they were seeking, naturally, that's, uh, that's where we would have ended up uh, f- from such research they conducted. I mean, um, uh, using uh, monkeys as test subjects, there, there's various other forms of uh, research they conducted. But uh, just like David had mentioned, uh, there wasn't um, any like actual um, work conducted on, okay, what, what are these cannabinoids? Um, if, if there was, we, we never really heard about it. It never really came out into the public. Uh, more towards the 90s, there was more studies on these cannabinoids. I think uh, that was more relating to cancer. Um, and, and AIDS. Uh, and, and AIDS, and, 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 and AIDS and at the AIDS. time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, but even a lot of those cases were, uh, I want to say, isolated research. It, it wasn't really open to the public. No, not many people knew about it. Um, it through the 90s, uh, there was always stories and uh, so, some, some people, some of the listeners may have heard this, but through the 90s, a lot of us heard that even the government was growing weed for a period of time, like that the, uh, like the, the strain G13 was patented by our federal government uh, for the purposes of medical research um, conducted by which groups we don't know exactly. Um, we, can have over- a clear, we can have a clear idea as to what types of groups one of them primarily would be like FEMA. Did you uh, did you actually find that out? Did you read it I somewhere? I don't, but I, I I heard this from someone. I can't disclose exactly who he is, but he told me that these environment organizations like FEMA, they're more of a mask. They're covering up government experiments, organizations, scientific studies, research, and all of that for primarily a lot of different things, but that's not the point. The point is, is that uh, when you look at research primarily with the cannabis industry compared to research like the cocaine industry, the cocaine industry is extremely vast to the point that we can understand the differences of of cocaine grown in a 300-year period, but yet cannabis still has this like limitation locker where you're constantly like, oh, but what's really wrong with it? Oh, but like, really, what are the side effects? Like, oh, is it really addictive? Uh, you know, I think that has uh, that has probably some other facets to it. Like, for example, when we look at derivatives of cocaine, you know, they were able to patent very specific drugs like Novocaine, very useful. If you've ever been to the dentist, you're very grateful that it was discovered. Otherwise, you know, the, the type of pain in oral surgery, you would shit yourself, you know. Um, I know, with, tell me. With, but with cannabis, um, it, it's a lot trickier. What I've realized over the years, like 
Miranol was something very unique that they had tried to patent, but then they realized it's just not exactly the same. You know, what occurs in nature is very difficult to duplicate in a lab. You can try to, but cannabis is very, very unique. Um, and so it was easier, in my opinion, it was easier probably just to shove it out and make it inaccessible and only give, you know, research rights to a, a few um, until you can find a way to really develop uh, certain formulas that you can patent, you can control the uh, manufacturing and distribution of, uh, much like how we see with uh, cocaine. I mean, that in itself, very harmful drug, uh, but the derivatives that came out of it, very useful. I think we can say the same about, um, you know, other painkillers like uh, morphine and uh, opiates and, and, and uh, opiates. Yeah. Uh, but why aren't those banned in the same way when they should be? There's there's, you know, parts of Europe that um, that have absolutely banned certain opioids because they know that this shit's incredibly harmful. But we think have not taken like, the same yeah, steps. Think, think about, like, for example, like Percocet's hydrocodone, all of these, like they're painkillers. But if you really look at the side effects, they're very lethal, extremely lethal, you know? And if like, you're the person that like hits all the buttons, your doctor just prescribed you pretty much like cyanide. If, if you abuse it. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, you don't know that yeah, you're addicted. Kind of similar. Kratom's a similar thing in that, uh, it's a, it is natural, but when you start to isolate specific compounds of the different cocktails that go into Kratom, they can concentrate specific compounds that become much more dangerous than just Kratom. Just by itself, yeah. So Kratom has 25 alkaloids that have been identified and it's once again, one of the largest pharmaceuticals patented uh, Mitrogy 9, uh, which is the one that they determined to be uh, the most uh, effective for pain. Um, and what they're going to do with that patent, I don't know yet. We're going to have to wait and see. But you're absolutely right, David. Now that they have the patent, they can um, just pump it with, you know, steroids, make it incredibly uh, powerful. And now it's much much more dangerous than the plant itself. The question becomes, as I say, it's a, the, the same kind of a coincidence with cannabis, you know, taking the one alkaloid out of the, out of the 25, well, what are you leaving behind? You know, maybe there's something special about the other 24 and the combination of all of them that do something special. Same would be said about cannabis. Uh, hence why I think, uh, I, I believe Marinol was a failure. It's not, it's not, it's not really uh, distributed in mass. They, they just didn't find it to be uh, as, uh, as effective as they were hoping. Right. You know, kind of, we're kind of going over basically the construction and the history of how everything has been viewed. You know, I, I did, a, I had to do a lot of research because I don't really know too much about this industry. But when you have two people that are are right behind you, I'm like, I'm here. <laughs> I've God got bless you, David. <laughs> God bless you, David. Thank you for all the research. I know you're working incredibly hard every single day for this podcast. 
damn man, the amount of bullshit you gotta shift, you know, shit through on the internet <laughs> to find actually something that's useful. Like I was looking up about cloning, and then like this schmuck of a company is like promoting their product. And like they just like kind of created this page, and I'm like, all of a sudden, like, oh, you should buy this. And like, oh, hell no, don't do that. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm closing you. But like a like a one page, you know, uh, website basically, and then yeah. and then like a buy now button at the yeah. bottom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what what do you think about that, David? Uh, like, what does that what is that, um, what, what is that uh, kind of um, like hinting towards? I think we just need to start educating patients more accurately. I think the industry has tried so hard to educate patients in different ways because the industry has been kind of tying themselves to stories that are not accurate ways of teaching cannabis. What I mean by that would be like the stories of indica and sativa is a large part of how cannabis is sold and has little to do with the plant compounds that will be found in a cannabis strain. So we've been sitting here teaching patients indica sativa because back in the day, that used to be how you would teach people how to get weed that's going to get you high or not high. Like pay attention to the structures. We're going to go through this a little bit later in the podcast, kind of explaining the history of of the evolution of the plants, the dominance, you know, like why specifically there's only uh, actually only hybrids. Now there really is no, but we'll, we'll go into that a little bit later. More something I want to touch on. I saw this article from the Harvard Gazette and they had a medical teacher at the school. His name was Kevin Hill. And they did like a Q and a with him. There was two questions he was asked. I think it's important to go all over. Uh, I'm not I'm not using this as accurate information. We're using this information to kind of go over what we believe to be the problems, our point of view and our perspective. So they asked him, what is is cannabis addiction like? That was the question. So his response was, it's less addictive than alcohol, less addictive than opiates. But just because it's less addictive doesn't mean that it's not addictive. There's a subset of people whom I treat frequently, said Hill, who are using cannabis to determine of their work, their school and the relationships. It's hard for most people who may use it once a month or once every six months, or they tried it in Vegas because it's legal there. Oh, my God, this sounds old because like Vegas was like. Way back when. Anyway, <laughs> they recognize that the reality that many people are using are using and losing in critical areas of their lives. I've had patients who have lost multi-million dollar careers. It's hard for people to understand that it can happen. I often offer often compare cannabis to alcohol. They're very similar in that most people who use never need to see somebody like me. But the difference is that we all recognize the dangers of alcohol if you go into a room of 200 high school kids they know it's dangerous and binge drinking among high schoolers is weighed down yeah sure but if you ask that same group about cannabis you're going to get all different answers data suggests that always although cannabis use among young people is flat 
That's another misinformation. It's going up. The the perception of risk among them is going down. So while everyone's talking about it and stores are opening in Brookline, Leicester, I have no idea where that is, all over the state, adults and young people are not clear about the risks. So on the note of addiction and that whole story that's created throughout Prohibition, People really build this image of their eyes of who a drug drug addict is. Are you an addict because you don't have money? Are you an addict because your life is not going well? Because somebody who has multi-multi-millions and is smoking every day doing incredibly well, all of a sudden they're not the same type of addict. In fact, they could be an addict in very good health if they're consuming correctly. And somebody who's not really... Uh, how do I say? I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is the productive alcoholic. You know, yeah. the, the, the stereotype of where you're so addicted to alcohol that you can like be just normal throughout the day. Yeah, but, the functioning alcoholics. Yeah, function. I'm sorry, functioning, functioning alcohol- alcohol- alcoholics. Yeah. But substances don't make people who they are, nor do they force people to fail in their life. They can contribute to somebody's failures or lack of direction, or they go into a wrong direction, but that's still their choice. Cannabis, alcohol, no substance makes somebody do something outside of their personal choice to do something. Right. The, the only, the only like argument against that is to say somebody is completely lost the moment they're out of their, their normal train of thought, but everything influences the human mind every food you consume, every substance you consume is technically going to change you, but you could never say that a substance forced you to do anything. Right. Cause like I told you this earlier and Mike knows this, every podcast I've done on this, this channel, I've been stoned every single one. I sit there with my bong and I hit it. Does anybody ever notice like I'm high because it's not, that's not reality. You know, I created this way of using it. I'm not a functioning cannabis user. I'm just a cannabis user. I have my full-time job, 40 hours. I send them smoke during the day. I do lift. I have my art business. So how do you, you, you can't compare it because I'm a perfect example. I could be a total failure. Do I look like I'm a total failure? I'm doing a goddamn podcast while stoned. <laughs> Give me some credit. <laughs> but then you, you definitely deserve some credit. I mean, uh, the addiction factor, David was right on point is that it's, um, you know, every, every single thing that you put into your body can certainly be uh, addictive. The uh, broccoli, the, the, the characteristics of, you know, what, uh, what, what that addiction might look like could vary. Right. Um the behaviors you'll see from somebody who is an alcoholic will vary from the behaviors of somebody who's a uh, uh, addicted to nicotine or um, heroin, cocaine. um, I mean, you know, caffeine. 
um, masturbation. It, it, the list the list can go on. There's there's many things that uh, you know the human body uh, can find themselves desiring uh, oh so much. Um, there's psychological addictions, and then there's physical ones. Uh, physical ones will have symptoms. Psychological ones. Uh, more so, I, I feel like will um, reveal themselves in uh, like behavior. Yeah, like PT, uh, like PTSD. PTSD is a perfect example of this because you know we were talking about this, David. Too, it's like we're. I actually do a couple of things to help. Like I have an emotional support animal. I smoke cannabis. Uh, everyone has a different reaction. You know, to say like there's a cure that works for every single type. Is flawed logic because every this is proven by science. Every person's DNA, genetic construction of every single person is unique. It has similar genes from other from your ancestors, but it's unique. And when you create offspring, it's more new, new, new uh, unique DNA and genetics that are being created. So when you're dealing with something like that, not everything applies the same. I don't know why people don't get this. It's like maybe they, maybe they do, but they're you know um, uh, the way the way the medical science is um, portraying it uh, is that like here take this and you should be fine. We've uh, you know we've tried it on a hundred thousand other people, a million other people, mean and, mice, and, you know, and owls you know, and rats. Right. I mean, we, we've seen good results after a, a, a trial of six months or so, um, and so uh, so many you know, chimpanzee coffins. Of, a lot of times you are the guinea pig when, you know, you walk in and you say, I've been dealing with social anxiety and they give you this, uh, they give you this pill. Um, you know, they know that there's a chance that it might work really well. There's a small percentage that it might not. And then they'll have another drug they can prescribe you to, uh, to kind of have you experiment with. Um, those have, those have, you know, those definitely have a lot of implications. Um, I've heard many people talk about how they have, substantially uh fundamentally have changed under the influence of a prescription drug to uh minimize their anxiety or their depression um they it uh, they can actually notice it after a period of time uh they can sense that something is different and this is what you do this is what happens when you play uh when you play god and you know not so many words but <laughs> Ultimately, addiction is a very, very difficult, a difficult um, thing to go through for all people, especially yes, yes. since it varies so much. Like cannabis addiction, it reminds me of, you know, the half-baked movie with uh, Dave Chappelle. Oh, my uh, God. G- Jim Brewer. Uh, uh, I th- Great movie. I, yeah, I think, it, I think that's, what, that's what it was. Dave Chappelle, he, was, uh, he went to a NA meeting and he's like, I'm addicted to reefer. And you have uh, and you have Bob Saget uh, uh, acting in there, and he's like, "What weed?" He's like, "I've never had to suck dick for weed." <laughs> oh God! Oh, gr- good times. Oh, <laughs> well, what? How about this? So for for cannabis addiction and this idea of what addiction has been built into our heads and these. Uh, really the outsiders of how they view cannabis consumers. They view them as addicts. And the reason why they view them as addicts is they get this idea in their head that it's the person in the basement. Like they really have the stigmatized idea of who this person is. But if we're being fair in the community, there is a lot of that. 
a lot of people are ending up just like living in the basement and just smoking weed all day. But guess what? That's a perfectly normal thing. People that are in the basement smoking weed, there's just as many people just in the basement not smoking weed. Drinking like, beer all day, watching NASCAR. No, no, no. Yeah. Fox News. Yeah. Fox yeah. News. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's uh, j- just as many people. Uh, it could be said that there's just as many people who uh, who don't smoke weed, but still in the basement or in their living room playing video games all day. Um, that's just that's that's a choice. So, so, so but the by the way, like people don't have an issue. They don't have an issue with cannabis. They have an issue with people's time management skills. When you smoke, now what do you do? Right. You know, it's it's so weird because I actually I got a therapy. I'm in a minute. I got I got to shrink every week. Uh, I've been going to therapy for about three or four years, and one of the things I've had to constantly train myself is with cannabis is that this is not my healer. It's a tool. Don't abuse it. And I have had friends that abuse cannabis really badly. I had one friend where she was a zombie, just smoked all the time. And you know why? She had to deal with her older sister. Her mother was going through a divorce. She had family drama. She had to work two jobs. So it's not she was using cannabis to kind of fill up a void. So it wasn't cannabis or to to escape escape. It wasn't the cannabis that was destroying her. It was the fact that she was using it to cover up and she was suffocating, burning inside. You know, same can happen with alcohol. Right. But alcohol is different because alcohol is where not only are you now creating this addiction, but it's actually damaging you. Right. Damaging to the point that your liver will shut down. You know how important the liver is in your body? No liver, you're dead. I mean, you know, some people can do it for like 40 years. I, 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 I know, but I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying like to compare alcohol and cannabis, even though there can be that addiction in perspective, but look at the aftermath. Right. That's, a, that's an important, that's an important uh, aspect to look at for sure. Um, the, the reality is, if we look at it in that light, they're not the same. But it, 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 with respect to what your friend was going through, um, a person can use many different things to escape the problems that they have. But right, but you, she used cannabis in this yeah. case. And, and in your case, you have you know you have the right message is you know use the tool to uh, to help you uh, achieve the goal that you're seeking. Healing comes from within a lot of times. If we're talking emotional, psychological, that's, um, you know, having tools along the way are great, but the strength for to change and to face your fears and to heal, that's all within the individual. And uh, of course, their circumstance, their environment, their circle of influence. Uh, But ultimately, uh, I think uh, David is right that it's improperly categorized um, there, there is a perception around, um, you know, individuals who may use cannabis and it was a nice, uh, a nice, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, a nice way to kind of look at the two when you say uh, someone who is addicted, 
uh, supposedly to cannabis, but they're a high earner. They are a high per performing individual. But yet um, when we compare it to, you know, someone who is um, not a high earner or a high performing individual, you know, uh, why? Why is there such a difference between the two? Um, what's your perspective on that? What do you, where, do you, where, where do you think um, that some do perform really well with cannabis and then some do, uh, don't? Do you think that's a choice or it's uh, individual? What do you think, David? I think it's practice. It, n nobody is going to go into cannabis for a first time. Well, some people can do it. They're, they're out there. But for the most part, most people aren't going to pick up a full joint of a 20% strain and smoke that whole joint to themselves. That is... That, that, that's a lot of THC for somebody who's not ready for psychoactive activity that can really slow them down if they're not prepared to do whatever task they need to do. Right. But the thing that we're missing today that we, we kind of miscategorize patients as abusing it because it looks like they're using too much. We're just seeing people that are using too much and they're not fitting into their reality with that well. They're, they could be consuming a lot and it could be providing them health benefits, but just because they're receiving health benefits doesn't mean that they're going to be receiving real life help. Right. Which real life health is money. Real life help is work, it's family connections. And if you can't be on top of those things while using cannabis, then you're, you're going to have some things to work on for yourself. But to say that cannabis is the cause of those issues, that's prohibition talking. Yeah. I, uh, I, I went out for a second because I wanted to grab something and I wanted to, I don't know when you can see this, you guys can see this, but <laughs> I actually... Here, I'll show you, and then I'll tell you afterwards. Hold on. You see? Yeah, that looks really good. Sweet. Peace sign in the center with the face. Hold, hold on, hold on. Let me let me turn this off to actually make this work. Oh my god! With Zoom and all of its preferences and its Jesus uh, Christ. There hold you on. go. There. That looks really good. So one of your recent designs, one of my recent designs. So you might ask yourself, I know everybody's like, we had a moment of silence. No, this is not a Memorial day. This is just us looking at something you can't see, <laughs> but that design all came from a smoking session. I was on a call with a friend. I saw moth. I focused, I was on my desk and I focused on it and I focused on its wings and its curves and its patterns and the colors. And I sat down and just with, you know, kind of in that meditation phase, I was able to kind of put the whole thing together and that's what it made. Wow. It went from a moth to like this woman or creature with no gender. That's kind of morphing through the wings. And you might think of me like, Damn, that my, man must smoke so much weed, but I don't. It's just coming from using the productive aspect. That's what David's pointing on, too. It's where 
actually has a healing properties. I'm actually able to create things with it. That that whole period. So people need to separate that. That it is beneficial if you use it the right way. But I keep on saying this through this entire episode. <laughs> the way, <laughs> the right way. Well, as far as like daily use goes, a lot of people might not recognize or see themselves ever being a daily consumer of cannabis. But would they see themselves going to the gym every day? Because as I, I've done Brazilian jiu-jitsu since I was five years old, and there's a large portion of the jiu-jitsu community that's very pro-cannabis. And the reason for this is during grappling, you become, you develop a lot of patterns in how you roll and how you do your sport with cannabis and being able to tune into the moment more, have a change of uh, pattern thinking while you're rolling actually provides for moments of looking at things from a totally different perspective that you might not normally see. Maybe you move differently. Maybe you start to be a little more conceptual in your training rather than looking at it move per move. There's so many different ways that you can use cannabis in a craft that can create epiphanies or bursts of breakthroughs of like, making things way better than you might not have ever gotten to had you not had the cannabis influence. Mike, what's your, um, what's your take on all of this? I, I totally agree. I have, um, I have similar experiences with psilocybin. Um, I've smoked cannabis for much of my life and I, um, I credit it, uh, you know, with a lot of the creativity I've gained the, uh, the, the abilities that I've honed over many, many years. I mean, I started very, very young. Uh, and so it's been a part of my teenage life, my adult life. Um, and um, there, there's many things that I have gained from the use of it. Believe it or not, as of lately, I, I desire it less. I mean, I, I haven't even, yeah, I mean, I haven't even smoked today. I just, I don't really, I, I don't desire it the same way as I once did. Um, but I, I can't say like, you know, it's bad or I'll never do it again. It's just simply like I'm at a different point in my life where I feel like I've, I've gained the things that um, I, I wanted out of them. But it's always there. The tool will always be there if I desire it. Um, and I, I understand what you mean um, when you say like as a, uh, uh, an individual in martial arts, when you're on the ground, and the, the form and the feel of what you're going through and what you're experiencing, you know, the way you're grappling, the way you're rolling on the mat, um, the movements, it's, um, uh, it, it's really enlightening if you have some cannabis in you and you're feeling all of this as it's occurring. And, and, and um, at the same time, I imagine, um, you know, jujitsu there's a lot of technique. I mean, I, I, I grew up watching UFC and um, uh, I'll be honest, being on the ground was never as exciting as people going face to face, you know, uh, <laughs> but still uh, that, that's from, that's from a spectator perspective. But at the same time, like I had the appreciation of 
what these guys were doing while on the ground and the technicals, but feel is very important too. And so all that training and um, behind the scenes, uh, when, when it's coming live and they're actually going through it against an opponent who is incredibly skilled, um, is, is going to be beneficial. Um, I feel like uh, it's the same thing for musicians, the same thing for artists. They're, they're, your, your perception is different when you have some of this influence and you, you, yeah. are, you, are, you are able to see things sometimes that you couldn't see. You, like the brain is so overactive. I mean, I forget the number. There's millions of things and thoughts and actions that the brain is conducting on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, we don't realize, but like millions of actions. So yeah. to be able to slow those processes down in the brain, to be able to capture um, uh, incredible moments of opportunity. Bless you. All right. <laughs> but it, but it's very cool um when, when you said you know in the uh in the world of martial arts there's a lot of uh there's a lot of proponents i thought of eddie bravo i don't know why <laughs> no it, it's funny it's funny you mention this because i do psychedelic art that's the art form that i do and one of the key components of psychedelic art is, you know, that component you get from the psychedelic drugs, which is that creativity flow. People like ask me, why do you draw the way you do? And it's because my perspective has changed. I don't view the world as flat. I view the world as circles, triangles, squiggles, lines, forms colors yeah that's how i perceive the world and it looks weird but when you when i'm able to draw it you're just like interesting i never thought of that perspective that's what sometimes these things do your 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 next you know the next level for you is dmt the geometry on dmt is quite beautiful oh i've always i've always wanted to draw a temi a demi trexel it's very difficult. It's basically where you have a, a spine and it's triangular at the point and then it twirls. You have to have the lines twirling with it at the same time. I got to. I mean, m- you, maybe, maybe, you know, you smoke some DMT and then it might come to you about oh, how you might, how you might uh, yes. approach that, uh, that piece of art. But, uh, with, you know, when, when you think of geometry, I mean, this is, uh, or your, you know, your approach to art if you ever get to experience this, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's, um, it's, it's changed the way I look at the fabric of reality in a lot of ways. Um, every time I've done it, it makes me question like if, if my eyes didn't perceive these objects the way they've been programmed to, could it, could it be truly like, you know, could reality truly just be all of this geometry that, uh, that the DMT is, uh, is kind of portraying in you my vision. This? You see this? Sort of, yeah. That's like That's what I was great. picturing like while you were talking. I'm like, wait a minute. You're speaking of the eye. Oh, that's that's really beautiful though. You did a great job on that. Thank you. No, you know, this is another point I think we should bring up. Uh, I call it the eye, but it comes by other names. When I say the eye, I mean the leaders. You know, the... The, the fat white people, 
that sit on their crummy chairs, that eye, you know, the ones that watch down you and control you. He brought up another point uh, where they were talking about the House uh, DC area. I don't know how to pronounce this. The committee, whatever, the 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 fuckery, ju- judaical, whatever you want to call it. The, ju- uh, the judicial committees. Yeah, whatever. Ugh, the people that make more yeah. money than I do. Anyway, they approved the bill of removing cannabis as a Schedule One controlled substance. When did this happen? I don't know when they. I think it was a few years ago. I think it was about 2018. Uh, okay. There's a long way to go with that legislation, but what that step may conducting the studies easier to clear some form of confusion. Do you want to? Do you want to, Mike? Do you want to say the piece from Hill? Well, you know, uh, from what Hill was talking about, so uh, like scheduling of drugs, uh, one one means two things. Number one, does it have addictive potential? Cannabis does. But it also means that there's no medical value. I think you're hard-pressed at this point to say that cannabis and cannabinoids have no medical value. This is Hill speaking specifically. I, so I don't think it should be a Schedule One substance, and changing that really would make it a lot easier to study. Funding is a bigger barrier. And um, he's, he's right. I don't know when he was, uh, you know, he was addressing this, but uh, getting it out of, out of schedule one makes um, everybody's job a little bit easier. Funding is a big issue. You, um, you know, virtually everything requires funding to develop, um, uh, you know, products with. So the research that's conducted um, uh, brings in certain results and information and data. The data is processed and then they figure out what they can actually produce with it. And this is good for um, uh, for the broader industry. It's good for like David. He, he, David was explaining to me a lot of the the things that he's visioning for the future and what he wants to be a part of uh, in in terms of developing. And uh, at some point, uh, maybe by uh, towards the end of the podcast, I'd love for David to kind of uh, share with the listeners some uh, some of those things that he he hopes to um, uh, not just that he is you know, envisioning to be a part of, but what, what he is hoping to uh, kind of begin uh, creating starting from like now. Uh, but ultimately it begins with proper um, like legal clarity. Where do we stand? What, you know, what right, can we- you were talking about this. One of the biggest obstacles right now, it, it is financial where they can't get loans because the banks won't approve anything. So can you imagine like you've got got to get license and all the papers and everything like that's then, eighty eighty thousand dollars cash. And then you can't deposit any of the proceeds in a bank because they won't give you a fucking checking account. No. Guess what? When the fires were occurring in uh, in California like two years ago, a lot of these dispensaries or cultivators went bankrupt. You know why? Because insurance companies won't provide them insurance for their businesses, even though they're legitimate businesses. I mean, um, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of the products I deal with fall into the same category, the nootropics, the, um, the dietary supplements, the kratom, um, because of the way uh, the federal government looks at these things, they may be legal, but private corporations um, rather be on the safe side. Their, their risk tolerance is much lower. Um, and the same goes for the cannabis industry. Their risk 
appetite is very low. They don't want to deal with it until they have legal clarity as well. So you have an entire industry kind of sitting and waiting. The 2018 hemp bill was probably one of the best things that had come out out of the uh, the Trump administration. Um, and it goes even further into like what David was talking about, how what he's envisioning the uh, the cultivation of uh, of cannabis and hemp, and then all of the byproducts that it can be uh, that, that it can provide. And imagine all the other things that can come out of those byproducts. We're not just talking about cannabis and its derivatives uh, uh, of consumable products um, for health or wellness or for whatever. There's so much there's so much more that can come out of it. And that's exciting. It's it's good to know um, that we, we've already kind of o- overcome one of those hurdles. We'll have to wait and see what happens next. So, yeah, I mean, more research will bring hopefully better, better understanding. And this is what David was talking about earlier in, in the podcast when we began. The, the education is lacking. You have a lot of different um, circles of influence, whether it's the medical community or uh, the cannabis community, retailers, uh, dispensaries, smoke shops, head shops, they're all, um, they're all educating from a, from a limited source of knowledge. And when we do finally have a nice standard that we can all rely on, a lot of this misinformation will disappear. And then uh, all consumers can have a realistic expectation of how these things work how to approach it, how to use it correctly, um, how much they should use and, um, and hopefully find benefits like, like your mother did, you know, if it, if if it even improves the quality of life a little bit, it's, uh, it was worth it. I mean, the most craziest thing is, and we're not trying to make a drama documentary, um, supported and run by our government, Nat, of course. Anyway, uh, thank you for our support and sponsorship. God bless America. Uh, and make America great again. This is supported by Trump. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, you know, she she told she told me she's like, at least I can go to sleep more comfortably every night. You know, like we're we're in a situation right now where it's pretty unbearable. You know, to add on everything else just makes it even more unbearable. But to have, and you know, it's so sad. We're a humble little plant. Me, you know, little marijuana, you know, little little plant. We could put a little, uh, as the uh, the white Americans like to call, we could put a little sombrero on top of it. <laughs> God, I'm racist, but poor innocent plant has to go through so much hell. What did it ever do to anybody? You know, it's not like a Venus flytrap that like kills bugs for a living. Simple little plant. You get so much hate. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just what it is. Um, this is how governments work, uh, and they're very slow. The bureaucracy is un- un- unbelievable. Let me finish this little piece from Hill. He continues on. He says, "Right now, I'm sitting in a state that is profiting from cannabis. I've got a store a mile away from my hospital, and they're printing money." It's raining out, moving, and people lined up outside of the store to buy cannabis. There are permanent crowd control ropes in the parking lot and police detail. 
A lot of people are profiting from cannabis while neglecting to contribute to the scientific evidence base. And it shouldn't be that way. I mean, um, this is an area of your, you know, your expertise, David. Ultimately, yes, it is being, um, it is very profitable, but uh, can you just speak to us and tell our listeners uh, from your perspective, from the organization that you're working with currently, what's, um, you know, what, you know, what is Hill alluding to? What, um, what can we expect um, in terms of a medical application long-term? We need the, we need the dude right now. So, so I, I, I am writing a book that covers all of this in detail. Um, but what I would say is that money in the cannabis industry is obviously not running low. If we wanted or if we were allowed to create low price cannabis for patients, we would do it. If patients were allowed or if the public was allowed to grow as much cannabis as they wanted and to create an LLC, test their products and sell it, then we would have more cannabis in this world than we would know what to do with. Every patient would be getting, I mean, all my friends and family would be accounted for because I would do my efforts on my own farm to provide for everybody that I know for free medicine for their entire life, because I would be capable of providing that in today's market. I can't pay for everyone that I know. I can't buy all their weed. It's impossible, but every person that would be willing to grow for their people and their everyone around them, we should be talking to our neighbors. Like we shouldn't be like concerned with debating with our neighbors about cannabis. We should be going to tell them, Hey, here's free cannabis. Let me know how it works for you. As far as the missing education, we don't have lack of research and knowing how good this shit is for people, how much actual change this is for patients' lives. We know that what we don't have is the ability to be allowed to grow as much as we would definitely distribute. We're already doing it. We're doing it on the black and the legal market. It's extremely dangerous. It's creating criminals out of people who do not deserve to be criminals. We need to allow more opportunity for people to do the good thing that needs to be done, which is grow a fuck ton of cannabis. And people should be allowed to buy that cheap. And we should be using the byproducts to also get rid of things that we should not be building if they're not being built sustainably. Yeah. You know, we, we discussed this before and I think I mentioned this to Mike. We talked about this too. You know, yesterday was September was, was September 9th, uh, 9-11. And there are actually a lot of people that are still affected respiratory uh, cancer that were affected by the toxic uh, toxic clouds there have been organizations roughly around six that have worked together to try to be able to give these people free medical cannabis to be able to help with their conditions. And they've been fighting and fighting with the government to help poor people that were hurt and destroyed because the government 
could have stopped the World Trade Center from crumbling. But now these people are all suffering and you refuse to help them. You caused that building to collapse. You're the culprit. Those people are now suffering. Some of them have died because they were heroes and they went back into the building to save lives. You caused that and you refuse to give those people exactly what they need. Monsters. It, It blows me away to see, you know, John Stewart. Okay, pushing forward for as many years as he has to help these people. I mentioned it before, and you know, seeing him speak about it, he's very emotional. He's very passionate uh, to see uh, all those uh, individuals affected um, uh, to to help them get the recognition and the care that they deserve. Um, again, we're talking about a late night talk show host who's you know who's leading the way. How you know? It's crazy to think about that, that, you know, that it's someone like him who has to go out and do it. And yet we still don't see the type of progress that we should see. I mean, it's um, it's sad. That's why but, when that's why when the date comes up, it's not we'll never forget. We'll always remember. It's we need to care and we need to remember that it was only 20 years ago. That's not a lot of time. No. So there's still many people that are affected. And if we don't do something, it's not going to be 3,000 people died that day. It's going to be 6,000, 7,000, 8,000. Same thing with this pandemic. Like at the beginning, people were dying like crazy, including my dad. Nothing. It's got worse and worse and worse. And what do they tell us? quarantine you'll save yourself and take the vaccine take the vaccine like a champ it's it's just like what about my family what about the fact that we had to pay for my dad's funeral the age of 63 wow he was young yeah and now we have to take care of my mom she gets no social security no benefits barely nothing because my dad didn't die at 65 i'm sorry We'll we'll make sure that, you know, we'll take him out of the ground and make sure to rebury him when he's 65 years old. Like, is that fair? So you kill my father. You put us through family turmoil. And now I have to take we have to take care of my mom for the rest of her life. Why? How's that fair? That's what they do. This is what they do over and over again. And you know what? If more people that had family members that died from COVID and would talk exactly like I am, we wouldn't be where we are right now. They constantly do this. They make rules and regulations and say no. We got to do something. I think, you know, what David's talking about is a, uh, is a good point, though. Um, one of the things that we can do is, is try to push for um, more legal clarity and then allowing uh, the masses to participate, just like it was, you know, 10, uh, 10 or so years ago. I, I saw so many people um, participate in the industry um, openly without uh, discrimination. And um, and they were they were prospering, you know, average people growing 10, 12, 20, 30 plants, uh, depending on how they, you know, work the laws out. Um, 
it's uh, it was lucrative for everybody. If you fast forward today, it's not. You know, the uh, the legalization um, basically has cut out a vast majority of people who are already doing it legally. And um, just like what David was saying, it's uh, it's on it's really unfortunate. We have a legal market that is nowhere near what the black market looks like, and they're being criminalized. The black market uh, dwarfs in terms of uh, in terms of annual uh, revenue uh, compared to the um, the legal market. Just in California alone, we're looking at a you know eight billion dollars in black market revenue on cannabis compared to the you know four billion dollars annual legalized cannabis market um it's a little bit different than that so tell me for for 2020 legal cannabis captured about 17 billion dollars and the black market was estimated around 130 billion dollars so is this nationwide yeah yeah okay yeah so the numbers i was talking about were just california but that's an insane uh, that's an insane number, 130 well, billion. There's, there's a reason for it. For example, if you come to the East Coast, even states like New York, that cannabis is legal. To buy it legally here in New York is absolutely insane. It costs about $4,500 in the state of New York just to be able to hold a medical card. You're shitting me. I'm being serious. To be a medical patient? Yes, about $4,500. Is that what annually? No. So that's with your, you have to go have five doctor visits. They're $500 a piece. <laughs> that's insane. Yep. So yep. Ba- basically you really have to be uh, uh, sick or nearly dying to be able to get this. Does that sound right? And they also, <clears throat> uh, they don't really approve if you have PTSD in the state of New York. Oh, that's horrible for like veterans, man. So the black market actually is quite clean out here. So mo- mostly the black market here is where you have people have connections to wholesalers in Canada. So a lot of the cannabis we smoke illegally here in New York is not even from the States. It's from Canada. Yeah. Or Canadian. What, what, <laughs> I mean, what, what can you do? But, but it's, it's still insane. $130 billion, you know, uh, annual revenue from the black market just goes to show you that, it's a very lucrative market and opening it up to the masses would be a much more beneficial thing to do and just find a reasonable tax 10, 15% across the board for every uh, small time and major player, you no know, tax. It, uh, no tax. The, the governments don't work like that, David. So <laughs> we have to, we have to give them something. Yeah. yeah. I, I give the, I'll give them something an M16. <laughs> Right in their uh, fucking face. Uh, 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 be careful what you say. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Don't worry. We're, we're on the list of being censored. I think we're like number three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, really, it's really upsetting that um, there's so many that can benefit. And yet here we are um, still trying to uh, figure out a way to maximize profits and um, and then obviously all the derivatives market of uh, of cannabis is a pretty wide range. I mean the uh, the top brands have made a, a killing on CBD, and it honestly, the manufacturing of 
you know, some of these derivatives aren't expensive once they have already begun the process and all the investments are in. Um, it's not that expensive, but uh, of course, there's all the other, you know, aspects to it that the lab testing, the batch testing, the, um, uh, the, the, the labeling, uh, the label requirements by the FDA, because those are constantly changing. And so co companies have to pay for that uh, if they want to uh, remain compliant. Um, it's, it's crazy. It, it really is. And this kind of brings us to, uh, you know, the next, the next half of this, um, this podcast. Yeah, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna get into it. Uh, you know, we're gonna be in on our break in about another 10 minutes or so. And then we'll we'll touch base on the other ones, mainly like you wanted to cover like derivatives as well as other parts of the uh, the cannabis themselves. But yeah, well, fun. <laughs> I should hope so, because it's another hour. <laughs> <sighs> God, I still like I drank a whole cup of coffee. I'm like, me need some more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's late where you are, man. Oh, always. It's always late here. Yeah. Well, 9.45 here. It's 11.43 here. Oh, so I'm yeah. the luckiest. I'm the luckiest bastard out of the three of us. Oh, hell yeah, man. <laughs> I've had a pretty long day, too. I, I had to come here early and uh, deal with some shit myself. So it's um, luckily I finished it. Uh, 10 minutes after seven and then i got your text i'm like oh time to time to go <laughs> it's so weird because um i think this is probably going to be the most difficult thing when covering this is you can always have spectators i know i'm going to open up my computer and it's going to be that one that one person that one spectator that puts an American flag in the comment section. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to find you. Who are you? Oh. Whoever's listening, if you put that flag, I will track you. I will track you. <laughs> hey, as long as there's engagement, I don't care. I'll take it. <laughs> Hopefully. I can't, you know, I can't be too... Uh too critical now so they're watching they're commenting they're leaving flags sure man go for it all day long i don't care what kind of flags oh it doesn't matter to me I, you know even uh even on my personal channels it's like um uh, i'll i'll take i'll take any comment you you just drop it and um i guarantee you'll get a response <laughs> i i respond to everybody even if you're gonna talk shit like i don't i don't care that seems like a lot of work. Uh, I mean, the life of an entrepreneur. It's not easy. Yeah, oh, my God. Tell me about it. It's not like easy. The, 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 the amount of times I've had to explain what I do, you know, <laughs> and like, I love like there are there people who are like psychedelic art. Is that drugs? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like it's art. You it's dipshit. art. <laughs> it's not a drink you buy. <laughs> so. They have like sit and have a whole conversation. You're like just sitting there and you're like, I have to do this every single time I explain this to someone. I'm like, I need like a tablet, just like a tablet that's like, here, this is what I do for a living. Watch this. <laughs> that's a great idea. 
I was I thinking mean, of that, doing like a video yeah. explaining the art. Yeah, it's a good yeah, idea. It's a, it's a great idea. I mean, you know, instead of having to explain it, it's like, here, watch this. I'll be back in two minutes. <laughs> and then you let me know if you have questions. <laughs> oh, my God. It sounds like when you go to a convention. Like, yeah. that's exactly what they do. I mean, you know, the, our world is changing so rapidly. You know, it's... Um, Everyone's going to become an entrepreneur at, uh, at some point in their lives only because uh, all the fucking opportunities uh, in terms of uh, just regular uh, employment placement is uh, just just being diminished year after year after year. Like, yes, it's uh, there's going to be jobs, but they're just not going to be the, you know, the greatest ones it's just the way it is. And so because that's where the, the world is evolving to. Yeah, I, I, I think you'll be ahead of the curve, Dave, creating a, a two minute segment that like, oh, you want to know about me? Here you go. Watch this two minute video. Wait. Well, I thought. <laughs> so, David, if you have a moment, um, can you share? Can you share with us, um, like, um, I mean, your role within the uh, the organization you're in currently? Yeah. So with Utah Canner, UtahCanna.org, uh, I originally found the job listing online and uh, applied for the job to help patients fill out their paperwork before they see the doctor and make sure that they're qualified by Utah standards which they have a list of qualifying conditions, uh, including chronic pain. So if you don't have a medical note for anything else on the list, then you don't need a doctor's note for chronic pain. You can meet with the QMP doctor and they can get you licensed for chronic pain without previous doctor visits. Uh, What's a QMP? Can you explain uh, that to the the uh, listeners? QMP doctor is basically in Utah. Uh, they have to have a medical professional license. So they have to have like a, uh, they have to be a doctor and an advanced nurse practitioner. Or there's like one more license. So, so you mean, you mean like a PhD? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So once they have that, then they can take the state four hour test and now they can prescribe people cannabis. All right. So is, uh, what's the cost for a, for a patient, you know, if they want to uh, have access in Utah? So a lot of the companies are around. So they have an initial uh, phase that lasts for 90 days. And it's usually around $175 to qualify for your 90 day trial period. That's more expensive. That's more expensive than Florida. How well, does that make any sense? Because Florida is $75. Every state's going to be, I mean, here in LA, it used to be, you know, $500. Then it dropped to $250. Then it dropped to $100. Then it dropped to $50. As as more doctors decide like, hey, man, I can make more money writing these scripts, doing 20 of them a day, 30 of them a day, renewing or writing new ones, than, uh, than doing my original practice. So more saturation of participants drops the prices because- you know, they all want, they all want that money. So, I mean, interesting. I used to go to a guy named uh, Rosenblatt and um, a Jew you know, 
<laughs> a Jew. <laughs> Most of them probably are, but uh, I'm Jewish, so I can make racist comments towards my own people. But in yes, general, in general, the price over the years has continuously dropped, including Rosenblatt's um, costs. I mean, they all try to remain competitive because there's more doctors who are able to write you a script. So therefore, you know, in order for you to be competitive in the market and to capture a bigger portion of that market, you have to have a better price than the next guy. But David, tell me what happens after the 90 day trial. So after the 90 day trial or during the trial, they can renew their license for six months at a time. So every six months, it's another hundred dollars to renew it. My company went to the state to try and rather than forcing another meeting with the doctor for a renewal, we tried to make it so that maybe they could do like a Zoom call with the doctor and get renewed that way, just kind of making it easier on the patient, maybe being able to lower costs that way. And the state said, we would never allow it. Like they didn't even try. They're, they're not in it to help patients. They're, they really are playing a game now. But what's, what, what is happening, exactly what you said, is like prices are starting to drop because they're recognizing that the only way to really recruit customers is to beat them on pricing. But while they're trying to win that game, they're going to be criminalizing everybody involved in the industry. They're going to be collecting whatever revenues they can on the black market while they build the legal market. But there, there's a giant disconnect that's happening with education and school of thought between the legal industry and the black market because the black market is there's a lot of the perspective of, oh, the legal industry is like just collecting money. They're, they're, just, they're just extracting funds from patients. They're not in it for the right reasons. They're not getting medicine to the patients for the prices they could be getting it to patients at. But it's a mixture of both because neither groups are properly educating patients they're both educating patients from the bubble that they're living in so the doctors and the medical environments are a great option because it's putting patients in front of doctors who know about the medical field which is very dialed in they're very precise in a lot of the things that they do do and they're able to, if they can build an expert level of cannabis, it's a great integration to their existing knowledge base. But everybody that's giving patients cannabis advice is wrong unless they are an expert in cannabis and actually know what they're talking about. Because if you're just in the regular industry recommending to a patient, you're recommending them into very expensive pricing that insurance does not cover. Yeah. And if they're planning for retirement, you're taking chunks out of their retirement. Yeah. And on the black market, they think that they're the ones like fighting against that when their pricing is 
probably pretty close to the legal industry. And because that's the price they can get out of their stuff. So there's this giant game of everybody shopping around for cannabis and it's ignoring what actually needs to happen, which is helping people consume cannabis by not smoking it and making that the industry standard so that more patients can understand how they should be consuming and why they should be consuming. Because right now, a lot of patients might look at the industry of cannabis and only see it as smoking. So they rule it out or they only see it as stoners. So they rule it out. They don't see the entire picture of cannabis because it's too much to take in at once. Yeah. You have to talk for, with someone for hours and hours just to help them start to comprehend like what's real or not real in cannabis. Right. Break down the stigmas that are in their head and you have to spin it to them in a way that is accurate to reality, right. which is extremely hard to do when you're living in a reality that is a specific school of thought. It takes a lot to really like educate a patient on everything that's around them. It's, it's too much to cover in a conversation, especially with a patient where the, the carding process is a 15 minute meeting with the patient. How much, and there's no like standard of, Hey, here's all the information you need to know about cannabis. It's okay. You got any questions about cannabis? How much to consume? Well, start, start low and go slow. Like that's not fucking helpful. That's not a recommendation. And yeah, they're, they're, they're not, no, nobody is recommending accurate information to patients except for cannabis experts that know proper dosing. Right. I mean, we're going to, we're going <clears> to, <throat> Oh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. We're going to kind of go into this a little bit more, explain about the questions and the different forms, the different types. But uh, yeah, we'll see you guys soon. Hey guys, and welcome back from our short little, oh my God. Yeah, short, very, very, very short break. Uh, so we're going to be kind of changing it a little bit. We're going to be kind of going over the clones, kind of explaining a little bit of what it is, then go over explaining what are the dominant strains. And then from there, we'll kind of go over a few other things as well. But uh, we're here for another hour. Please don't kill us. Please love us. We love you too. So... Um beginning with the evolution of clones. And um, I think it would be best to um, hand this over to, to David and let him kind of, um, you know, fill us in on uh, what he knows in, in, in this general area. Um, I can provide my two cents after the fact, but what do you think, David? I mean, it's uh, uh, the clones have made it much easier to, uh, to be able to reproduce and reproduce quickly. And I remember you did talk about this, how, uh, you were part of a very large operation pumping out like 600 pounds every two weeks. And this is, you know, potentially because 
uh, you can um, clone again and again and again? Yeah, so clones compared to seeds are a more uh, precise copy of the mother plant, where if you grow from seeds, you're likely to have more genetic variation from the like parent plant that you're taking the seed from. Now, what that means in large acreage is that if you're going to plant, say, five acres of CBD, if you don't have really good seed, then there's probably a chance that you can get a male, you can get plants that are maybe on the edge and end up pollinating all of your other plants because you didn't remove a male or uh, you had a weak female that uh, started to pollinate other plants and started creating issues that way. Now, when you're farming five acres, you need crop consistency and you want your crop to be as strong as it can be. You don't want to have a crop where some of your plants are producing higher levels and some plants are producing lower levels. You want a plant that you know is going to produce consistently compared to what that previous mother produced. Um, and there's different reasons why you would start from a clone or start from seed, but all of that is kind of old tech compared to tissue culturing, which would basically be the sustainable solution to large scale agriculture. We're already using tissue culture in a lot of our other crops, and it's great for multiplication because you can get very consistently thousands of copies of a single mother plant and there's not genetic drift from the multiplication process. Now, what you can do in culture is that you can introduce a different combination of auxins and cytokines that like the seed difference compared to clones, how there can be variation, you can actually trigger mutations with similar, similar variations that you might see in seeds. So you plant a five acre seed crop and you're going to have kind of like ups and downs of total cannabinoids, or you could have all kinds of genetic variations in that. When you do it in tissue culture and you try to create mutations, you can create larger mutations than you would see from a normal seed. But people get this idea in their head of like, oh, tissue culture is bad. It's unnatural. It's not a natural plant selection process. Uh, they're kind of right. In, in a lot of ways, like you could potentially pick a monster from a genetic breeding program that you did. But the huge value in tissue culturing in the multiplication side of things allows, say, an indoor facility with a mother room, they can cut down all their mother plants. And instead of needing to take care of them, 
bunch of mother plants and take 800 clones, they can have a tray that has 800 clones and they can replicate that tray every two weeks by three. And they can take that and they can just put this into long-term storage and whenever they need it, put it into the growth stage, watch it triple, cut it into sections. All of your 800 plants is now times three, 2,400. You can keep 800 if you want to keep them for your inventory for your next batch that you're going to have to grow when they're, when, when you're ready for another crop. But what that does for facilities that are limited on their cultivation limits is they can now cut down their flower room and they've got an entire room with all the lighting and equipment purchased that they can have another flower room. So adding another flower room to an operation is huge. That can be a significant boost in income And technically, every cannabis producer should be doing this at least to get it into culture and make sure that their plants are free of viruses and molds, which there's ways of taking a small, small piece of sample from a plant and basically sterilizing it of systemic issues that it has. Even if you clone it, even if you breed it, there's still viruses and things that can stay in the genetics where if you put it into culture and run it through different processes, you can actually remove some of those viruses and things analyze the DNA to make sure it is removed and then replicate your crop. But fascinating. There's a large part of these strains that are all around that are kind of going unchecked on what viruses and things that they might be holding, but tissue culturing is a solution to keep an eye on that and to kind of provide cleaner plants more regularly to growers. So, I mean, uh, is there, is there a definitive difference? I mean, between the two from like, let's say um, taking clippings of a, uh, of a mother plant for the clones to the, uh, the cell culture, um, uh, process that you're talking about? I mean, are they completely different from each other? Um, so when, when you put something into culture, you can improve the genetics of a plant. So, so say you've got an old, an old blue dream strain that you've had for 20 years, but it's kind of developed a few like things where every time you try to cross it, it fails. Like it, it, it passes on this characteristic that you've developed in your genetics and you can't breed it out. You can't get rid of it. You've tried to breed it with like stronger things, but this thing keeps coming forward, whether a lot of it's a, like a virus. Once it gets a virus, it's hard to keep that plant alive 
to be able to like get another healthy stock out of it. But if you take that sick plant, put it into culture, remove the viruses and molds, then grow it up, then you have clean genetics again, and that plant can outgrow its environment more easily. When, there, when there's like viruses and molds in, a gen, in the genetics of a strain, it holds back the potential of that strain because it's having to fight against the internal problems it has. Um, on the note of like, maybe like a clone versus a tissue culture success rate, uh, that could be where someone could technically have more success rate, like a higher success rate in cloning compared to tissue culturing. Just looking at it from like what's going to be easiest to implement in a cannabis business. But once you dial in the processes, growing from clone, they try to get, say, a 90% success rate. And if you're going to have a 10% loss, then you plan to grow 10% more clones so that you can still have a full crop to plant when you're ready. So same thing with tissue culture, you figure out how much loss you're going to have in your process of plants that you can't get out of the seedling stage and you can't get them big enough to be like easy to grow and easy to survive. There is that like beginning, beginning stage where it's almost like crossing a plant from indoor to outdoor you have to slowly introduce and harden them off and really integrate them to the environment again. Tissue culture has the same thing, but it's a little bit more tricky because they're coming from a completely clean, sterilized test tube environment. And when you bring those out, they have to be ready to come out of the, out of the sterile environment. And you have to slowly introduce different things that can help uh, the plant combat like healthy pathogens or healthy, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like beneficials in an environment. If they don't have the right ecosystem to be able to just like, how, how do I, I'm losing it here. Just think of the Dalai Lama. Give you guidance. Well, I mean, but, but but that makes sense. I I think I I think I understand on on a, a simple level that what you're trying to describe is, you know, the, the the clone, whether it has strong genetics or not. I mean, if it's going through a very specific environment, um, it, it's going to be a little more. Um, it's going to be a little more. Uh, I want to say. Um, acclimated because it's already going through that it's been it's it's either an outdoor or an indoor and um whatever it's been exposed to that's kind of is what it is uh but then you're still stuck with a lot of the issues if there were genetic problems whereas um if we're talking about a petri dish type of situation where you've sterilized everything um getting it out of that sterile environment and then for it to uh, for it to be successful, let's say in an indoor operation, the the environment itself is so very important. I've been through growing situations, and they're very painful. It's a full time job, maybe two full time jobs in one. 
um, uh, between um, ma maintaining the plants, the nutrients that, uh, and the, the parts per million for the nutrients. But um, I can see that it would be difficult in that regard that um, getting it from a sterile environment and then putting it into the uh, real environment where it needs to kind of begin its process of veg and flour, uh, it's now being exposed to the environment. The environment isn't clean. It's going to get fucked. Right. Um, so like but, the, the thing you need to ask yourself is where, how important, because it is, the environment is a very important factor of all of this. How many steps a person needs to take compared to both, you know, when you have the mother plants and you clone them compared to the tissue, you know, you have to ask yourself, are you infecting the environment differently? Are you infecting the environment more efficiently? Or is just more efficiently because if you if you can get a say uh, say the goal is to produce or you're you're gonna use a set amount of water and nutrients for the year you're gonna plant five acres and for that acreage you have a set water and nutrients if your plants aren't the best plants that you can put into that soil then you're gonna have a uh, you're gonna have a lower yield. If your plants aren't ready to be optimized and really use that water and nutrients as efficiently as possible, and you're going to get the most yield because your plants are the best, that's the reason to tissue culture. Or at least to start from a tissue culture tested genetic lineage that you know is clean and free of viruses and then use that to start your entire cannabis operation. Any strain that you bring in, you have to vet it, make sure it doesn't have bad stuff in it so that when you put it into production and you run extraction, that you're going to pass testing and you're not going to have mold in your crop. You're not going to have, I don't know how viruses show up, but, or if viruses maybe affect maybe the, uh, the growing process more, but um, yeah, it, it's just putting the best crop you can get, you can develop into the soil whether you develop it from a salt, you can develop solid uh, feminized seed. They have great machines that can really get you a high likelihood of being all feminized. So you don't get males. You can get uh, clones from mother plants that can do great as long as they're clean. And I mean, that's super common in how a lot of the industry does it. But tissue culturing is how large agriculture just works today. So like strawberries, blueberries, billions of plants are tissue cultured. That's what I was going to ask you. It's, it was really intriguing to me is, do we use this already in, in food production? And we it do. sounds like we do. I keep, on saying, I keep on saying this and nobody ever hears me. I keep on saying broccoli. The reason why broccoli is very important is if anyone remembers about 40, 50 years ago, where did most of our broccoli come from? It was frozen. The reason was broccoli was very unstable when it was fresh. It would get really disgusting and garbage in a matter of like a few days on the shelves. And all of a sudden, we have this green, luscious, fresh broccoli out of nowhere. And it turns out it was done through the process <laughs> of with, you know, with tissue. And now we're able to have frozen and fresh broccoli because of it. 
because they removed all those viruses that cause broccoli to decompose so quickly that we no longer have that issue anymore. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. It's not the only, it's not the only vegetable that we don't, we, we don't really think about, but there are many that are like these bananas are another one of them. I mean, I'm just, it's really fascinating. As soon as you started talking about, you know, in the cannabis world that it's, you know, this would be more efficient. It, it struck me. I thought, wait a minute, is this being used in, in agriculture now? Oh, um, it's, it's in cannabis too. There's a, there's a Canadian company and uh, they were on, they're on growers network. They, they have an episode and wait, was it growers network? Mm. Is it Aurora cannabis? No, I'm Canopy trying to grow canopy growth nope no tilray it's it's just a tissue culture company and they produced between 13 and 15 million plants in a year wow various companies and the owner says it took them about 70 employees about three or four months of work to produce 14 to 15 million plants and that's just one company. There's other things that can be done to optimize those processes. There's, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not just, it's not just better. better. It's not just plants. You know, we think about it also, they were able to, I think a few years ago, able to create, I think it was a goat or a sheep in a bag. Like out of nothing, they created a goat and a sheep baby. And, that's just from genetics, the same kind of thing from the stems themselves are able to create these things. And it's like, it's not only just vegetation and plants, it's everywhere. Wow. Like, oh my God, can you imagine if they can clone Elon Musk? Two of them? Oh my God. Uh, uh, Solve uh, world uh, problems sooner. There's another tissue culture thing that can be done. That's like another huge benefit to culturing. So imagine plant breeding you have maybe you have a male plant you really like, and you try to breed that with 10 different females. So you grow 10 different strains to maturity and your male, and then you try to pollinate everything to see how they all turn out and work out after you then raise those offspring in tissue culturing. You can take a small piece of a male and a small piece of those females and without growing them to maturity, you can just breed them in culture and create a new strain. So without growing anything to maturity, you can now back cross. You can now, you're not having to wait for all of these plants to grow to maturity. You can do a cross and then you can have another cross over there. And then you can cross those two things without ever having to fully grow anything Whatever you do create, though, it just has to be tested so that you are maybe you're selecting for THC specifically and you're really that's that's all you're looking at. Well, you could miss the part of the genetics where it defends against mold. So maybe you picked a plant that's really high in THC and has zero defense for mold. So if you're in an outdoor environment, you're just fucked yeah a lot of strains are specific to their environment once they're in an environment like 
it's hard to grow them in a different environment. But sort of, if you're able to control an environment, then it doesn't have to do with like a plant succeeding or failing in indoor or outdoor. It has to do with the grower's ability to keep a plant alive in the indoor or the outdoor environment. Right. The The other thing that uh, does come up, me and we spoke about this, Mike, is the dominant strain. Where uh, you have this thing today where when you go to a, a dispensary or you get cannabis, you either pick between sativa, hybrid, or indica. But in reality, most of those strains are hybrids themselves. You know, I was reading a few articles, and one thing that kind of came to mind was in the 18th century, there's a French French biologist by the name Jean Peptisti. I, I can't pronounce this. Peptisti Lamarck. It's a Jean Baptista Papi- Lamarck. Lamarck. Okay. Well, <laughs> you're doing a better job than I am. Uh, he basically created this cannabis classification system. And he did this all based on the appearance of the various cannabis plants. His research that he created were based on the samples that he collected from India. So mainly this was done with samples and kind of like, so from his observations, he decided what made the plant indica was, I believe the plants were shorter and firmer stems were thicker. Um, They had like these stubby leaves and they grew in like all these alternative patterns. Then he had this thing with sativas where they were taller with feathery leaves, but None of what he was basing was actually on the plant itself. It was just based on the appearance. And then, you know, we kind of saw a little bit later where botanists and other researchers came along and said, no, that's not true. You know, like the the only true breed was, I think it was called Cannabis Sativa L. Like that was the only like beginning of the plant itself. So this is an interesting thing where, if he was proven wrong from the get-go, where his own community said, you're wrong, but then we still use his process, even right. though it's flawed. Right. That's funny. So something with uh, the Indica and Sativa story, originally a lot of that use in the industry was to really help people Are you going to get high when you smoke a strain? Well, you're probably going to be more likely to get high from a sativa strain or the head high versus the body high of an indica strain. But everybody who's creating new strains at different periods of time kind of have a different, like a different story as to why they used indica or sativa on the final labeling. There could be some historical tracking, but even the historical tracking was just another story that somebody put on a strain. The story of indica and sativa had nothing to do with plant cannab- with plant compounds. So indica wasn't indica because it produced more CBD and C- sativa wasn't sativa because it produced more THC because we didn't even discover THC until 1960, way after we invented sativa. 
we just had like a general idea of, yeah, like that got me high, sativa. Oh yeah, I feel that, like that's indica. And we started teaching, the entire industry started teaching from indica and sativa. And that's how we just now know cannabis of how it might make you feel. Yeah, that but, makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense because if you look at a lot of the scientific scientific research that was done in the 1950s, even with LSD, most of the research they were doing was just based on usage. Like, look at the experiments they did with LSD. They brought in artists to draw. They brought in writers to write. But that's all things you're doing, right like, under oh, the influence. Yeah, right. So it's like, oh, on acid you draw crazy. Oh, when you're on acid you write funny. But that's not actually proving the benefits or the cons. You're just showing what it does. So he has a point. Like, none of it was based on actual research. It was just like, oh, this is what it does. So it must be this and this. But it was still it was still helpful because that story of, like, how do you even navigate cannabis? Like, that is where it starts. Like, is it going to make me more awake, more asleep? Cool. Like, let's see how it fits into life now. But now that we have a deeper understanding of individual compounds, what amounts patients have found success in, uh, what it even means to consume cannabis, that story has evolved in today that we're just waiting for the right story to make sense so that everybody feels comfortable in saying, yeah, I should consume cannabis. Like it makes sense why I should and it makes sense why I wouldn't go to other medications. Right. But right now that's just not an option with the affordability. Right. Can you speak a little bit about terpenes, like from the, uh, the general research and some of the, uh, some of the experts I've spoken to over the years, um, ter- you know, terpenes are a, the way they've described it for cannabis, as well as other plants too. Uh, terpenes oftentimes are the deciding factor of whether something is a sativa or an indica. Is that, is that, uh, is that a true statement from your experience or. It, so that they have, on it? they, they have some pretty good, uh, like genetic compilations of all of the different strains and like the different compounds that they produce. And just because it's an indica or just because it's a sativa doesn't mean it will produce any specific terpenes, any like, uh, like an indica isn't definitely an indica just because it has a specific terpene. Okay. Like there, there is no standardization with indica and sativa. Those were old tech in how we taught cannabis and what we need to start looking at for patients is straight compounds and it might make sense to have it from the same plant, but that might be, let's say you need myrcene that they say is really good for pain management. Say you tell a patient, yeah, go get myrcene in your cannabis and then they go and find a cannabis strain that barely has any myrcene when they could just go buy a myrcene extract, even if it's not cannabis derived, they could have an extract of terpenes 
And then they could just buy pure THC and supplement with consistent dosing of terpenes if that's what they need. But rather than recommending a patient, hey, you need full spectrum because that's your best chance of getting everything that cannabis has to offer you. Maybe like they could get any strain that could have varying levels of all of these different compounds that may or may not be helpful. But at the end of the day, it's the THC that's expensive. That's the thing that's most illegal. All the other compounds and things you can find in other foods, like terpenes are found a lot in other foods and in higher quantities. But we're having avocados. What the flavors and smells and how they can adjust your your experience. And they do, but there's a better way to market and sell to patients. Got it. Yeah, it's weird that you bring it's weird that you bring that up because like specifically with foods, one example of this is actually avocados. Avocado is considered a superfood. Now, does anybody ask yourself why on earth is an avocado considered a superfood? And it's because if you break down an avocado, there are so many compounds to it that are actually beneficial not to just one part of your body, but to many different parts. And it's an avocado. <laughs> it's like nothing crazy, but it is a superfood. So if you can combine avocados with other superfoods and people knew which ones to combine, it's kind of the same thing with cannabis is figuring out which ones to combine will be the right ingredients. You know how beneficial that is? It's like, oh, if I eat this superfood and that superfood, I gain this. I take yeah. this compound like you know CBN or... Uh, THCA in raw form or something like that. You have these different components that are beneficial to different parts. It's mm-hmm. also important. And I think it's also where terpenes tie in as well. Most of the, most of the community is still, or the industry is still recommending. I mean, whether it's doctors or distributors, they're, they're all recommending cannabis from this, like, go chase the feelings that you think you should have and you deserve to feel those feelings. Like, cool. Okay. Uh, I I have pain. I like, I need to manage this, like start low and go slow. Like, thanks. Like, that's, that was useful. I mean, what what do you make about the uh, ever increasing uh, potency of uh, cannabis? I mean, uh, here in LA, the THC levels keep rising and, uh, we see that in concentrates. Um, we see that in uh, in uh, like oil-based cartridges, but we're seeing a, uh, a, a diminished or non-existent can- cannabinoid levels, like so virtually virtually yeah. zero. I, you know, I, you we spoke about this before, and I looked up and I found a piece that was written by a doctor. Uh, you know, it was Doctor Elizabeth Stoyet. She's I think Stoyet. Uh, she was a medical doctor, and in her article, she expresses a sudden increase in THC. Like, like the one thing I like, pointed out, like, okay, this is perfect for Mike. That was found in Colorado dispensaries, specifically. This is what she said about it, and I quote, The primary problem with the current available cannabis in dispensaries is in, in Colorado is that THC content is not like it used to be. Prior to the 1990s, it was less than 2%. In wow. the 1990s, it grew to 4%. And in 
And between 1995 and 2015, there has been 212% increase in THC content. It's no wonder why I get so stoned now. (laughs) Whatever I do smoke, I'm like, this is too intense, man. We, We had to do that. If we didn't, if we didn't do that, how much 2% THC would we have to grow to provide for all of the medical patients? It's not possible, not even close. Got you. And And that kind of goes back to the studies of the nineties, right? AIDS and cancer. And they were, you know, doing a lot of studies and that probably, you know, uh, led to the fact that, oh, we need to, we need to increase these levels substantially. And sorry to cut you off. Go on. And so we, we did, we, we hunted hard for THC and we started creating 30%, 40% strains. At least that's what the labs say. And then <laughs> CBD, we were kind of the same thing, 5%, 10% for a while. CBD market came on, boom, 20%, 30%. CBG started to come on the scene, 5%, 10%. It was a early produced cannabinoid and I was looking forever to find a good CBG strain that was going to hit that 10% mark because apparently that was legendary, like not possible according to many experts. And then I just talked to a farmer that claims that they hit 30% CBG on their last year's harvest. From what I understand about CBG, it's supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to help with like neuroplasticity and, um, and just, um, just strength, strengthening the brain in some manner. Like, do you know, uh, do you know anything oh, that you can share with us? I, I know what you're talking about. It's the one that statue where a person's body becomes a statue. I was reading about this. There's a condition where a human's body starts to freeze up. I think it's CBG. They were talking about if a person could consume the limbs start to unfreeze over time. And the person's able to have that free flexibility. So, I don't, yeah, I know CBG as being specifically good for gastrointestinal issues. So okay. IBS and digestive issues that people have, Interesting. or just like providing assistance to the gastrointestinal system, like it can help you digest your food better, especially when the food that we eat is garbage. Yep. Or, or for like uh, somebody who's really into their fitness and they're eating and working out a ton, that's such damage on the body in the long run that if they're not doing things to support themselves in those, like that'll, that'll kill bodybuilders. If they don't take care of their body and they just eat a ton and work out a ton, like they die. If you don't have proper supplementation or different ways to like give your body every advantage it can get, then you're, you're missing out on a possible advantages you can have. Well, also, by the way, you were talking about food. One of the biggest problems we as humans have now, where we've created these dietary routines, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and the foods that correlate with those three specific food categories. The problem with that is, we said this before, every single person is unique. What each person needs is different than others. So that means that a person that is six, four, six, six, four, six feet and four inches, and they weigh 310 pounds. So they're not heavy. They're just 
little bulky. I mean, they're pretty tall. They can handle that weight, but they would need to consume more food than someone that's like me, that's five feet and five inches. So how can we have the same breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the same type of foods for each meal? It's not possible. Ah, but it, doesn't that, make, it doesn't make any sense. But it does make money. I understand that. <laughs> I'm talking in the realistic perspective. Well, is like that's, that's, well, that's the reason why that's pushed. And, and different plant compounds, you don't necessarily look at that as like, different foods that people are eating. I say that all cannabis compounds are for every single person. If somebody thinks, Oh yeah, no THC is definitely not for me. I have issues with psychoactivity. I have deep depression. Like I have crazy flashbacks, like whatever it is, start small, go slow. Like that is good advice to those specific people, because if they do freak out, it can be dangerous. But for those people that are in that situation, they shouldn't be blocking themselves out completely either. Like they're, they're not completely debilitated in never being able to ever figure that piece out in their life. Right. Start low, go slow and eventually just get comfortable with, the thoughts that start crossing their mind. It's hard to build comfort in difficult thoughts that you haven't reasoned out yourself of feeling differently about, but it is possible. So, you know, you kind of, <clears throat> you touched base in explaining that the, the increase in levels is just based on how we're able to produce more, more efficiently. The thing is where she did continue in our article, what she was saying was in 2017, the most popular strain found in dispensaries in Colorado had a range of THC content about 17 to 28%. So you're kind of talking about like we're able to get to that point. We're able to get like to 30%. Such so as found in the pos- popular strain, the name Girl Scout cookies. Sadly, these plants are producing high levels of THC are incapable of producing much CBD. The protective component of the plants so these strains have minimal cbd so for example the girl scout cookies strains have only like 0.09 to 0.2 percent of cbd so i get that we're able to increase but then you're also minimizing the other potential of the plant which is the cbd content Mm -hmm. so where can you re get to a point where it doesn't have to be equal but now where one is diminishing the other to this Mm -hmm. point I mean, like, just look at this one strain. That's, like, not even strong enough to back when you're comparing it to the THC. So CBD, we we do the same thing for CBD production. We breed out the THC production. So the issue isn't that we're breeding higher THC plants without CBD. The issue is people are buying just THC and they're not really realizing what they're missing out on the CBD side. They don't understand cannabis compounds very well. They only understand. I like it because it gets me high, which is a huge medical benefit and is an extremely useful tool. People do use it and succeed and it's well worth the cost to them and it's expensive. Tell me about it. It costs me $1,200 a year. Yeah. I mean, Utah's, if somebody's doing two and a half joints a day, 
of a 20% strain, that's 500 milligrams. Two and a half joints of a 20% strain for somebody in serious pain might not be enough. That's $5,000 to $25,000 a year, depending on the products they choose. That's a big jump, though. That's very expensive. The $5,000 per year is a that's looking at like popcorn nugs and good luck getting popcorn nugs all year around. Got it. Limited supply. It is probably going to be closer to that $25,000 range, especially if you're consuming the products a patient should be consuming, which are generally leaning away from the smoking products and more towards the extracts or right. Uh, there's one, there's one product, nano emulsified. There's one product that Mike brought me up. I actually got one of these is these herb vaporizers where they have a little, like literally like a little tiny conventional oven where they cook the cannabis at a specific temperature and constant. So it never changes. And it's a whole different experience it's yeah. where not only you're getting cannabis in the session, but it's an equal portion per, per puff. So you can kind of like. A, a, sorry, I was going to say that David actually has them. He showed me some of uh, some of the, remember he was showing us his volcano, his, uh, his uh, uh, Dr. Dabber switch. Yep. And the, and the, what is it? The cookies gravity bomb. But <laughs> all cool. All of these ways, like vaporization, is just reducing your carcinogens and your total inhalation. Instead of inhaling like the the plant material from flower, you can avoid that in vaporization by just slowly melting off your plant compounds because they vaporize before burning. Right, and you're also eliminating the need of going with, you know, like oils or the cartridges. So if you're not somewhere that you're like, "Ah, I prefer flour, now you actually have a way of actually using raw flour instead of being only able to use the cartridges. So cartridges get a bad rap because... I don't think they're bad. I'm just saying that you have now two different ways of using it. An alternative, right. exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, a lot of carts are bad. A lot of carts aren't tested. A lot of carts, if they are in dispensaries, they could be that distillate form, just straight THC. And if somebody's only getting like a distilled version of THC, they have a pretty good risk of not liking the feeling that that gives them. Okay. It could give them, I mean, they're missing a lot of the other potential compounds that could be helpful, but it's, it's not bad because it's just straight THC. Like having clean tested THC is good, but And if it's missing all the other compounds, that can be okay if you're sourcing those other compounds and supplementing. Right. If you're going to hit the cartridges that have just pure THC, but it would be 
it would be a good idea to be supplementing with like a sublingual CBD product or capsule or something uh, rather than not. Over the past five years, I've gotten increased uh, amounts of uh, clients that um, are feeling a lot of anxiety. They're getting panic attacks and various, you know, symptoms of anxiety um, from, let's say, dabbing. Just straight concentrate as their primary source. They just dab all throughout the day and towards the uh, towards the end of their, you know, lifetime of being uh, cannabis users of that specific um, product, they're, they're beginning to show these symptoms. And so they come to me and say, Hey, why is this happening? And I'll tell them like, chances are, you know, the, uh, the concentrates you're getting have none of the other cannabinoids. Um, It's really important that uh, the plant has, you know, a little bit of both like great THC is getting you super baked, the psychoactive effect. That's what you're seeking. But if you don't have, some of the uh, the benefits of the CBD and the CBN and the CBG and the various other cannabinoids within the the cannabinoid tree. Well, you're what you're missing out on is the the other aspects. So THC gets you high, but the CBD um, provides a sense of uh, a sense of um, you know calm and relaxation. Mm-hmm. So one without the other, you're just getting really high. And then that has repercussions that we, that's what we're seeing. I mean, I'm, I've seen easily hundreds of people over the years for the same reason. Um, very fascinating to have experienced that and to, to talk to all these individuals, most of them very young. So most of them ages 18 to 25 who are experiencing yeah. this issue. It's, and it's so one, heavy dabbers. It's one of the biggest problems because, you know, I was, I was always like very skeptical about like, you know, getting into the whole cannabis industry. And I even remember when I was in high school, I really kind of like made this plan. And it's it's so true. It's like for a long time, I really did not know what products to trust because a lot of it was just BS. I mean, thanks to Mike, I don't have to worry about the crap anymore, but it, it is a problem. You don't really know what's real and what isn't. Unless somebody actually tested it, tried it, has research to say if it's good or not. So it makes it really difficult on people. What are they supposed to trust? How are they supposed to able to read a label and say if they're getting a legal product, then they should at least be confident that they're not getting contaminated with uh like uh, molds or different things that were maybe like leftover solvents from the extraction process. But what it doesn't vet is did they have a full decarboxylation on the product and are those cannabinoids even useful in consumption? Right. Cannabis produces its cannabinoids in acid form. And if they're not decarboxylated, uh, we don't necessarily, so here's where like something that we could use more research on is if, is THCA still medically beneficial to the body and still provide benefits if it's not psychoactive? If you just consume raw cannabis, 
without decarboxylating it, it will have minimal effects on getting somebody high compared to if it's decarboxylated fully and then they eat it. Right. We were talking about this before with Native Americans where they used to consume raw cannabis as part of their diet. And um, there's a lot of, you know, medicinal, you know, now also like we talk about superfoods. Superfoods is not something created by the keto campaign or vegansareus.org. Thanks. Vegansareyou.org, but uh, we'll find out later. Uh, it's it's superfoods because they have these properties. And you do see with Native Americans where they use TH, it's not GC, sorry, uh, THCA specifically with raw plants as a superfood. I guess you kind of have to view it more of a superfood than actual, you know, getting that, that high effect and all of that that comes with it. Well, so, something with that too, with, cause they definitely had the lower, the lower compound percentages. So maybe they were getting light effects and heavy consumption, or maybe they had some sort of practice with it, but what they were probably mostly getting from eating cannabis was protein and fiber. It, it's, one of the the highest protein plants, one of the most complete uh, proteins in plants. No kidding. It's it's oil is very good to eat. Uh, the the cannabis oil almost kind of gets a bad rap because people try to sell it off and instead of CBD, so you might get hemp oil, which is just juiced male seeds and then people will sell that and say oh it's cbd oil right but it's not it's not the same thing yeah it's funny because like i come from a i come from a my family's moroccan and they cook with hashish and a lot of moroccan cuisine like a lot of dishes have it so a lot of the times it's funny when you come to the states like these like authentic restaurants what do you think they use? They just buy hemp seed oil uh, 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 and they just replace it. They just put it in hemp seed oil. They're like, okay, that that or, fixed the problem. <laughs> or canola oil. Or canola. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it has a weed badge on it, so it must be. It must, it must be. be. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, I mean, the industry has exploded um, over the years and it's uh, there's a lot of participants and there's just a lot of bullshit product on the market. Of course. Um, and so th- this is this is the reason for this episode is to, to educate as many people about uh, the differences, the variations, um, applications, um, trying to better understand like where we were, you know, where we are, where we're going as an industry and uh, especially for, you know, newcomers, but uh, also for, um, you know, the uh, the old school community, much of them really don't know a lot of this stuff. They're just like, hey, I smoke weed. I have for years. I don't notice much of a difference. And um, especially, benefit- especially like we like with my mom, my mom is in her 60s and we're also seeing a, a sudden grow, especially in people that are in their 80s that they've had so many conditions to the point where that's it. Like we need to try something else, you know, to put an 80 year old on 15 medications. They're, they're not a dead person. You're trying to keep alive with strings. They're a living person. 
Like, so what? They've weakened. Their eyes are not as consistent as they were. They're still alive. They should be given a chance just like everybody else. You know, to limit a person based on their age, it's just absolutely ridiculous. That's also another obstacle we need to face. Stop treating 80-year-olds like dead people on strings. Like, there are... Uh, but they're the easiest to take advantage. I mean, of course. you know, like my wife's, uh, my wife's um, uh, grandmother. I mean, uh, she, yes, granted, she, she was going through cancer, uh, but the amount of drugs they were throwing at her at any given time was just insane. And from her experience, um, it just really scarred her. She just doesn't trust doctors. But when you're 80, you're vulnerable and uh, you're easy to take advantage and you're going to rape, you know, the doctors are going to rape the insurance. So 15 pills, whether, you know, whether you do need it or they make you think you need it, it's uh, they're banking on that. Um, maybe not every doctor, but it is it is kind of how the game works. That's what it is. It happened so to make money off of them. It, in it that happened. Fashion. It happened with my grandfather. My grandmother was an aquatic director for 34 years. My grandfather he can barely walk. He's in his eighties. She makes him walk. She Good. puts him in the she puts him in the pool. He does his laps and whatever. She said that I'm going to take care of him, but I'm going to make sure that he he stays active. You know, and it's like they're throwing medications at him. You know, like he can't walk, but she's pushing him right. because he right. needs he needs to live. I mean, there was there was incredible studies from uh, from NASA that. Um, showed that you know just by just by our very nature when you're active you're sending signals to your body and to your bones to strengthen so what happens when you're not active well you have deterioration so the your bone density actually grows when you're active especially if you're getting older in age, um, it, it makes even more sense to stay active so that you're telling your body like, hey, you need to stay strong. It's, very, it's, it's, a, very, uh, it's a very enlightening um, study and research and the results were remarkable uh, from uh, what they discovered. We have an example. But- Her name is Betty White. I'm serious. The woman is 98 years old. Yeah, she she can throw a football across the field. Wow. Ninety eight. Yeah. And the reason was, is she spent most of her years active. She was an actress. She's still an actress and she's in her 90s. She never quit. Keeps working. Yeah. And you're right. It is. If a person stays active, explains why she's almost 100 years old. She's more active than most people my age. Right. You know, I mean, and, you know, it's it, it's obvious the the culprit to that too. You're getting older, and you're getting less active, but it's because you have less energy. And chances are, it's your diet, and uh, and you're not getting enough nutrients or the right nutrients, um, so that you have natural energy. And so, therefore, less energy, less activity, and eventually, you're on uh, you know a plethora of prescription drugs because your doctor tells you you need to be on them. Uh, while all while you make them incredibly incredible amounts of money um, ta- as you take them willingly. Um, so it's yeah. crazy, but 
let's dive into uh let's dive into our last piece here the uh, the derivatives of all the cannabis stuff you know we've got dabbables and oils and edibles and you know we talked about some of the cartridges um you know there's new developments too like uh what is it um uh i want to say um We've got THCV that's hit the market recently. We've got Delta eights that, um, you know, uh, I was a proud. uh, Yeah. And I actually was like, whoa, this stuff is really like so smooth. Yeah. I mean, um, they, they, you know, Delta eight, they label it as a CBD product, but it's Delta eight THC still unregulated by the, by the federal government at this moment in time, but it is a THC uh, variable. Um, uh, but it's not supposed to be as intense. I mean, um, it's not. Overall, I, you know, overall, I want to I want to see what David has to offer and share with us about um, about these like new developments. Are these like, you know, would you say these are synthetics? Um, are they uh, or are they true components or derivatives of uh, cannabis itself? Delta A, THC, THCV. Have you heard of any of these? So THCV, uh, I've heard can be used for as an appetite suppressant, which is opposite from how a lot of people see cannabis as like creating appetite. It actually helps hold off appetite. Meaning like for people that are overweight, like the people that are like 600 pounds to try to help them to lose the weight. Is that what well, you're talking about? Is that the application or... I mean, uh, well, even think intermittent fasting. If we're supposed to only eat once a day, maybe it might make sense to take some THCV in the morning so you're not hungry until you eat at nighttime. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, I only eat dinner myself. I've done it like this for a couple of years now. Uh, but it's, um, it's I, I, you know, I realize like, oh, we don't need as much. And, it, and mostly it's the realization that a lot of, the foods we don't really we don't really digest very well so i've changed my diet a lot too over the past two years plus the fasting so um it's it's been a great experience and very very helpful i'm I'm just grateful that i made that transition uh but yeah three squares a day isn't really isn't really necessary i Um, i agree with you like i my version of breakfast is a cup of coffee that's it and it's weird because the reason why I, I do this is like this. I'm not recommending this for anyone. Coffee, especially in the morning, I'm not a morning person. So if I drink coffee and I go straight to work, I like immediately like have the caffeine and the energy to like just focus on work. So I'm not worried about like food or anything. I'm just focused on what I'm doing. And then like I'll reach a point during the day. I'm like, oh, and I just grab something small and I'm done. And by the time yeah. I reach dinner time, I'm actually eating a meal. Yeah. If you don't think about it all the time, yeah. it doesn't really I mean, bother you. That's a big part of it. The uh, But research that's been conducted shows that anything you put in your body in the morning outside of water um, just negates fasting in general. So like because what's happening is even caffeine, you're putting it into your body and into your stomach and, and now your, your stomach has to process those calories um, whether, you know, whether you think it's like, well, it's just water, but not necessarily. So, um, would highly recommend it's going to suck for a few days, uh, maybe even the first week, but just water until you do get a little bit of food in the afternoon. And then maybe your, 
your official meal by by the evening. Um, something happens in your blood and in your um, in your in your digestion when you are just doing water by itself. Um, I mean, I, I easily lost like ten pounds in like six months just by doing this, um, and I was really just baffled. Very limited, you know, uh, fitness. You know, like I do rowing, um, but uh, yeah, down the lane, row, row, row your boat. Uh, rowing is nice, man. It's a nice workout, just full body workout. I like it. Um, but yeah, but yeah, um, please so go ahead. THCV, and then there's a uh, the Delta Eight. Yes, please. Um, so I was just watching a podcast, and. They were talking about how CBD, this was Utah in the Weeds, is the podcast. And they have this, uh, they brought this extraction specialist on to talk about Delta 8. And he basically describes how we can actually make Delta 8 THC out of CBD. And does it actually get you high though? It, it's real Delta eight. Okay. So, so what we're, we're able to do conversion processes where we actually change the, so the difference between cart or Delta nine and Delta eight THC is like the placement of a carbon is different in the molecule how that carbon changes is through a solvent process. So they have to put it in a specific solvent that changes the chemical makeup and then remove the solvent. Why it's dangerous is because a lot of these solvents that it takes to create that process are very dangerous and you don't want any residuals, but in a product like Delta eight, it can technically be like, it's not federally legal like THC is. So there's right. less regulation on are those like, has it been purged completely or are the, are there residuals? And there's different things that you can notice. Like if you have a pink cartridge, he was saying that's probably from an iodine extraction, iodine not being fully extracted. So people that are smoking pink carts could potentially be smoking like residual iodine. But in general, what we're able to do in how we're able to create Delta 9 to 8, we can also go from Delta 9 to Delta 10 or 11. We can right. make THC or potent. And yeah. it's all just, it, it's just how we change the molecule. I've heard that Delta 10 and Delta uh, 11. I was really fascinated by it. I'm like, shit's moving too fast, man. We got to slow this shit down. You know, yeah, Delta, nine, Delta, Delta, nine is already, Delta 9 is already too strong as it is. You know, yeah. let alone a Delta 10 or 11. I did like, I do like Delta 8s, but what you're describing is very uh, concerning. Um, I have seen in the past uh, Delta 8 cartridges with a, a hint of pink 
in it. Um, and um, I didn't know what I was looking at. Yeah, that, as soon as he said it, like it just like I did the same thing. I was like, I, I've definitely seen pink carts around. I've smoked pink carts like they're out there. I mean, and- like but the oil wasn't pink, but you do see kind of a, a, a hint of pink in there. You know, mm-hmm. maybe on, either on the atomizer itself, um, the uh, the yeah, ceramic. That's possible, yeah. Yeah, this, you, like you the remember, ceramic. Do you remember what I was telling you about <clears throat> K2, which is synthetic cannabis? The strains that they tried copying was, I think it was White Widow. Yeah, it was White Widow. And the other one was Kush. It was Strawberry Kush. Or no, no, OG Kush. Why do they specifically pick those strains because if you i remember this i saw this if you look at the strains carefully like white widow it had these hues of like pink like a very pale white normal white widow doesn't have these colors it looked too um fake like almost synthetic so what i was gonna say but white widow is is typically very frosty it's a it's a it's a very strong sativa no that's the point though is there was only hints like the pink and the white it wasn't actually like the whole thing was like a very like green like just a little bit it it felt as if like somebody painted it by hand i don't know how to explain this so i get that like you can kind of tell it's not legit but you kind of have to like think twice it's kind of thing like that, like that pink you. No, no, not not for K2 users. They know what they're getting. <laughs> they necess- want it. Not necessarily. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, the people that smoke K2, um, especially when it was blowing up from like 2010 to like 2014, um, they're generally people who get drug tested a lot. They go through uh urinalysis screenings for their job or whatever. The, you know, the synthetic cannabinoids don't come up. Um, and this is why they they prefer the K2 uh, versus traditional weed. Um, it, it, that's why it's globally banned. I mean, they'll they'll keep reformulating it and s- sell them as incense. Um, I actually have a funny story about that. Somebody's been using my address for the last like year, and and they've been distributing K2 across the country. <laughs> yeah so i i had to rep- i had to report it to uh uspis the uh, investigative service for uh united states postal service and let them know like i'm not shipping these someone is illegally using my business address to distribute these things you have to find them you gotta you gotta fucking put them to a stop you know um because i'm not dumb i'm well aware the reason why i knew is because they started showing up to my door as like undeliverable i'm like wait a minute like what the fuck is this i open the package up in front of the carrier and we both see it i'm like bro this is this is not me and we both know what this is this is this is you know this shit's banned it's banned worldwide crazy story man crazy story freaked me the fuck out the first time i saw it i'm like i knew exactly what was going on sneaky people out there so they still distribute them they still try to sell them and they're trying they're actively uh, attempting to evade detection by let's say using uh you know a retailer like me 
Yeah, I mean it's it's crazy, but what can we do? <clears throat> do you want guys want to continue on uh, the uh, the variables? You know, the derivatives where you guys kind of want to just end it from here. We can kind of continue next week. I mean, next week we can kind of talk through the industry so we can kind of. I mean, I personally think we've covered so much. Um, There's not really much else to add. What do you think, David? Yeah, I mean, a lot of all of these types of conversations are exactly what so many people like are already aware of. Like it's pretty hard to give people new cannabis information that they haven't heard before. And if you realize that that's everywhere and everybody's looking for what's going to help the industry, the thing that is going to help the industry is putting everything, all the right information into a single bundle that makes sense to everybody. Until that happens, everybody's debating on what's right or wrong. Correct. But yeah, I mean, we're gonna. I mean, we're gonna touch packaged. We're gonna. I mean, we're gonna touch a little bit more base on this next week. Uh, I mean, this has been really incredible. I'm really happy that you're with us, David, and Mike. You're with us too. I am sorry. Uh, I'm just taking care of business. Nah, that's all right. Like always, having fun. We're grooving, we're chilling, we're also getting lost in the groove. Be sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lost in the groove so you can be part of our groovy family. Uh, thanks again to our special guest. Hope you guys have a great day. And like always, we post every single Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday. All right, guys. Bye.